Hello, I'm Mark and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast where we look at how researchers can become more productive and use their work to achieve real-world impacts. Today I want to focus on evidencing your impact and uh, I'm going to look at a few more creative ways of trying to evidence your impact. There are two reasons why we might want to do this. Uh, The first is formative. I think if you care about achieving impact from your research, there is no point in doing it if you have no way of telling when you actually achieved your impact and if you actually achieved the impact you set out to achieve. So if you want to achieve impact, I believe you need to have a way of tracking that and evidencing if and when it happens. That information will then provide you with feedback that can help you to do more and better work to achieve impact and to keep things on course. For many of us, this is a summative thing. And there are two reasons primarily why we may have to evidence our impact in summative mode. Uh, The first is our funders. Increasingly, our funders ask us to provide feedback uh, on the impact of our work. Uh, I have various different projects. Uh, Each of my funders ask for feedback at different times in different ways, and they're interested in different parts of my impact. Um, uh, But also, uh, for many of us, we are actually being evaluated as part of formal evaluation processes. So in the UK, this is the Research Excellence Framework. Uh, Australia is currently piloting this year its own version of the Research Excellence Framework, uh, which will start now to evaluate the impact as well as the quality of academic research in Australia. Other countries looking at this as well, in the EU, the Commissioner for Research uh, is also looking very carefully at how uh, in the framework program that comes after Horizon 2020, uh, he may try and integrate some kind of more formal impact evaluation into that. So I think whether we like it or not, uh, we will at some point have to evidence our impact. And my question uh, to you is, have you got some ideas um, and how can you do this in a fairly painless way? So before we get into that, let's uh, have a think uh, about this week's tip. So this week's tip is uh, thinking about how you can write a highly cited uh, article or book, uh, some kind of research output which is going to attract a lot of academic attention. Um, And uh, if you are in the UK or in any other country that is formally evaluating the excellence of your research um, in uh, in the UK, this is a star rated system, four star being the top uh, rating of a paper. This is how to write a four star paper. This has nothing to do with research impact. Uh, But I believe that uh, if we want to generate impacts from our research, then we have to make sure that the research itself is rigorous and reliable and uh, is actually the kind of evidence that uh, we want to build impacts on. And rigour is, of course, a part of how to write that highly cited or highly graded paper. Now, the advice I'm going to give you... um, uh, varies from discipline to discipline. Um, And so immediately I'm going to suggest that uh, the first part of this is more generalizable. The second part um, is not going to apply to some of you. So the first part of this is simply to look systematically at good practice. 
Uh, and now this seems like a fairly obvious thing to do, but I know very few people who have ever actually systematically analysed what are the highly cited papers in my field. Now, if this is uh, a journal article and you are now targeting a particular um, uh, journal for that, then what you're doing is you're looking at the citations of papers over the last number of years for that particular journal. It could be more of a disciplinary thing. So I'm going to look now across um, articles from multiple journals uh, across my discipline. What are the highly cited papers? What are the less highly cited papers? Um, bearing in mind that it varies with age as well. Um, uh, if it's books as well, go on to um, Google Scholar uh, and have a look at citations of books in your particular area. What are the ones which have really captured the imagination that have become incredibly highly cited and used? And can you now find things which those papers, those books, have in common? Uh, now, a lot of this is not generalizable, but when you do this analysis, most people report that there are certain things that you can see that the highly cited papers are more likely to do, and certain things that the really low cited papers, especially ones that have been out there for a while and just have never been cited, there are things that they do. And sadly, uh, some of the things that people do that uh, that make their papers uh, more cited are nothing to do with the quality of the research. Uh, you have papers which are not cited, which are still rigorous pieces of research, which are original and, in, and significant in their own right, but they've not been communicated as such. And I think part of the, the beauty of an exercise of, like this is that you can take the next paper that you're going to write, and you know this is good work. And by learning from good practice and in terms of what is highly cited, you can instantly now write that, communicate that in a slightly different way that significantly increases the likelihood that it gets cited uh, and increase the likelihood that it gets a high grade. Um, in the UK, uh, you can uh, analyse the uh, RAF database. So the Research Excellence Framework has uh, graded papers across different disciplines, across uh, all universities in, in the UK. Uh, and you can't do this um, entirely accurately, uh, but what you can do is you can just look at the publicly available graded outputs and you can work out uh, for um, a particular disciplinary area which are the papers that are uh, generally speaking, higher graded. So you can say, right, I've got a list of papers now, 20 papers, which I know that 95% of these papers were graded at five star and five, sorry, at four star, uh, the top grade, and 5% of these papers in this 20 were graded at three star. So I know that the vast majority of these papers scored well. What can I see are things that those papers have in common? And the same with the one and two star papers, you can do that. If you want to, the details on exactly how to analyse that data, where to find it with the links through to the original data, uh, then Google how to write a four-star paper uh, and the blog Thunder Mentals. Uh, this is a guest blog I wrote for Thunder Mentals. Um, and, uh, and you can see the full details there. Uh, the second bit, which is less generalisable, is um, uh, really works for... Um, uh, People, if you're not in arts and humanities, this is where I think you might want to kind of skip through to the main content if you're arts and humanities. If you're not arts and humanities, I think for most of this, this generally works. Um, and what I've got embedded in that blog is a little table that I tweeted 
Um, and I embedded that in the blog because actually there was a lot of critique under the table and I think it's worth looking at the table, um, which I'm going to describe to you now, but also going to the blog, looking at the tweet, looking at the critique uh, and thinking, thinking critically about what I'm about to say to decide if it works for you or not. But broadly speaking, a highly cited, highly graded paper uh, does three things. It's original, it's significant and it's rigorous. And broadly speaking, there are three types of contribution that you can make, whether it's a paper or a book, an empirical contribution, a methodological contribution, or a theoretical contribution. So that then creates a three by three matrix. So uh, a empirical paper could be original um, by reporting new empirical discoveries and important firsts. An empirical paper is likely to demonstrate significance by reporting research that has major consequences for the discipline and or major impacts outside the academy. And that empirical paper will probably demonstrate its rigour uh, in a number of ways. It could be a major synthesis of existing data or, or the presentation of new empirical data that convincingly demonstrates the originality and significance of the findings, with rigour clearly demonstrated in an effectively justified research design, data collection, and appropriate methods. Now, across all of the rows of the table, I've gone through the first of the first of three. Uh, this is a bit like being in a, in a driving test, uh, and I don't know about you, but I was told by my driving instructor, when you look in your mirror, don't just move your eyes, move your head so that the instructor can see that you are looking in your mirrors because you will not get any credit, uh, any, uh, any credit otherwise. Um, and you know that it's rigorous. Clearly, it's rigorous. You did the work. You know that you trust this, these findings. Um, but for all of these, what you're trying to do is now to actually spell out exactly and explicitly why this is so original, why it is so significant, and why this is indeed rigorous. Uh, I would suggest normal, good practice, but I think we often forget to actually make these three things explicitly clear uh, in, in our writing. The second of the, the three approaches is then the methodological paper. So this, in terms of originality, would be typically a new method, but the significance of uh, that new method uh, would be a, a new method that actually provides a step change in progress within your discipline uh, or gives people the capacity to generate impacts outside the academy that they couldn't have done without that new method. In terms of the rigour, methodological papers or books or contributions that apply, critically evaluate, refine, and in that way demonstrate the use and significance of the method across the fullest possible range of different application contexts. And then the third type of contribution is a theoretical. So this, in terms of originality, is a qualitatively new theory that is different to what has gone before and contextualised as such. Uh, its significance is then demonstrated by the fact that this is a theory that explains important unknown phenomena that enables new disciplinary advances or the ability to generate impacts. And finally, in terms of rigour, uh, a theoretical contribution will apply and critically evaluate the theory and then refine it and in that way demonstrate its use and its significance across, again, a full range of different application contexts. For me, 
this is not rocket science. It's fairly basic stuff. Uh, and for most researchers, actually, we know this already. But the thing is, it's kind of implicit in there. And for me, just spelling it out as simple as a 3x3 matrix, originality, significance, and rigor, and how you apply those criteria to an empirical versus a methodological versus a theoretical contribution is a really powerful way of checking whether or not you are making the most of the latest contribution you want to make. So the main segment today is on creative ways to evidence your impact. As I said at the beginning, there's no point in going out to try and achieve impact if you have no way of measuring whether or not you're moving towards it or away from it. Whether you're achieving incredible benefits uh, that are really meaningful and significant and far-reaching, or whether in fact you are having unintended negative consequences for other groups at other times in other locations, we need to know uh, whether our impacts are working or not. Uh, and in so doing, we can improve our practice and uh, learn from our mistakes and keep things on track and make sure that we do actually achieve the impacts we set out to achieve. Of course, for many of us, uh, very often this is about doing this in a summative way, providing feedback to our funders or to others who are evaluating the impact of our research. I'm going to go through a few different things uh, that I've tried or recommended or uh, seen people do, um, and you can choose which of them you like. Some of these are, are, are questionable, and I would like you to, to think um, quite carefully about the ethics behind these. I'll flag up where I think there are questions. Um, these are things that people do, that people have used, um, and uh, I'll let you decide if you think that this is appropriate or useful uh, or not for you. So, the first of these is uh, to try and spot if there may actually be some indirect impacts from your research that someone else has achieved based on work that you did some time ago that you're not aware of. And this is a beautiful thing if you can spot this because um, you, there's no work involved whatsoever. Uh, and in terms of summative feedback, um, this is an impact on a plate. Uh, so very often, uh, we will do some fundamental work, it's a new theory, perhaps a new method, um, uh, an algorithm perhaps, uh, and we, don't, we can't think of a particular application, but we publish it anyway, and it advances the thinking in our field. Someone else comes along a few years later and realises, wow, that explains how I can do X, Y, and Z as a theory. I can turn that algorithm now into some software that can do some really amazing new things that, that I couldn't have done otherwise. Uh, and what you're now doing is you're trying to identify those. Now, the way that I go about this is to do a citation analysis. Uh, what I do is I would start with uh, my most cited articles. Uh, you can try and then just go through. There are certain things that you just know are in no shape or form would this ever have any impact. Um, but uh, look, look broadly. And first of all, look at the, the most cited articles. Have a look through the articles citing your work uh, and look at the titles of those articles. If you think there's any hint of an application, then go into the abstract, have a look at the abstract and see, is this someone who has built on this, who is actually applying this now in a particular context? Uh, and then if you think there is something there, 
even if it's not that clear, look at the full paper, follow up with web searches about perhaps the funded projects that you can see cited uh, in the acknowledgements of the paper uh, that funded the, the, the work, uh, going to the, the websites of the authors or their CVs to have a look then at the, the broader impacts that may be coming out of their work. Uh, if then you can demonstrate that those impacts that they have achieved could not have been achieved if it were not for your algorithm, your theory, your method, your technology, your process, whatever it is, then actually this is an impact from your research. Uh, what I would do then would be to reach out to those guys and say, wow, amazing work. I love this. I'd love to find out more. I'd love to meet up. I'd love to help you with that. And then to try and work with them to enrich and deepen and take that impact further. The uh, next thing I'm going to do is, is I'm going to look at a couple of these uh, more questionable things um, and uh, question this, think about it, be critical about this. So uh, one thing that I've seen people do uh, when they want to um, evidence the impact of their work is to commission research that actually researches the impact of their work. Now, for a lot of the kind of things that we do, um, for example, uh, around public engagement, you can't very easily go out there and just count things uh, numerically. You need to do that more qualitative work that involves interviewing people, it involves things like focus groups. It takes time, it takes effort. And you actually need to set up a bit of a research project in its own right to actually then uh, evaluate the, the impact of your research. Uh, and that's fine. Uh, and you can do that. Um, and you've now got a whole range of options as to what you do with that. If you simply do that work and do not publish it um, and your funder comes along and wants to know, so what was the impact? And you then say, well, we did all this work and here are the findings of our research, then that's better than nothing. The problem that you've got is that it isn't publicly available and it's not independent. And uh, depending on how rigorously your funders um, or other evaluators want to look at your impact, uh, I would suggest this is perhaps not kind of gold-plated. Uh, this, is, this is perhaps a little bit more flaky because someone could argue, well, hey, you did the research. How do I know that you didn't selectively report that, that there aren't biases, that if someone else were to come and to repeat this, that they would get the same thing? So uh, if you want to avoid those kind of critiques, then you've got a couple of options. Um, the first option is to actually then take it to the level of a peer-reviewed paper. Now, um, this very often will be social science. And if you're not a social scientist, you will then need to work with social science to turn it into a peer-reviewed paper. That instantly creates a problem for you because you're going to have to actually commission uh, a probably university academic social scientist to do something probably quite extensive um, uh, at consultancy rates, which are going to be very expensive, um, and it's going to take time. Uh, so that's why then some people then take a shortcut, and this is where I think it can potentially become dodgy. Uh, and what you're doing now is you're saying, right, I'm working with a third sector organisation, a charity, um, a think tank, whoever it is, uh, to generate my impact. What I'm going to do now is instead of directly commissioning this research, I'm going to give this money to that charity for them to commission the, the work. Um, now, at all points through this, uh, you are making sure it is clear this money has come from your university for this purpose, and that is fully acknowledged. 
they then commission the consultants, they go out and do the work, they write it up, um, and it then gets put onto their website with their branding and logos and all the rest of it. Um, and you've got it co-branded with your logo on the front as well, if you want. Uh, and you've got a clear acknowledgement that says how this was funded, who it was funded by, for what purpose. So it's, in theory, above board. Um, and what the funder then sees is a publicly available report which has been independently commissioned by a reputable organisation through consultants. Now, the reality is that it will be entirely independent, and uh, I personally, therefore, wouldn't have any qualms around this. I think where it becomes dodgy is that uh, potentially you're trying to pass this off as something which is uh, looks more independent than uh, than it really is, and that there is a link back to you, and there is a link back to funding that has come from your university. And you need to, need to decide whether or not that is actually appropriate, whether or not that is in fact uh, ethical. Uh, the next kind of dodgy idea uh, that I'm going to suggest to you is something that was used by a few universities last time round um, in the Research Excellence Framework to demonstrate their impact. And this is uh, YouTube videos of testimonials about the work. Uh, a really powerful way to uh, evidence your impact is to get someone to go on record who is qualified to comment on your impact. Um, very often people choose people at the top of an organisation who have a job title which is really impressive, uh, but I think equally you need to bear in mind that actually you maybe just want a quote from a, a, a student, a, a, a child or a teacher for example at the coalface who can tell you, yeah it really works, in practice it's changed my life. But testimonials can be a very powerful way of saying yes this has worked and uh, if you can't um, really pin down the attribution if that person uh, believes there is attribution then they can explain uh, from their perspective how it was that they used your work and therefore that this was indeed linked to your research and there is attribution. So testimonials are great. Um, most people do this as um, you get someone to write it uh, on a letterhead of paper that you can store with their signature so you can see it is theirs, you haven't doctored it in any way, um, and you then might quote selectively from their testimonial um, and maybe link to an online version of it if people want to see the full thing. What some universities did, I think, was somewhat uh, crafty, uh, which was that instead of getting people to, uh, or in addition to getting people to write their testimonials down um, in letters, uh, they'd sent a film team um, out to these companies and uh, policy groups and third sector organisations, etc., and got these people to actually say their testimonial into the camera. Um, and then they quoted from the testimonials they put into the camera. Uh, the reason I think this is a bit dodgy um, uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, crafty perhaps is the, uh, the, the more polite term to use on this, is that I think uh, with a camera in your face, uh, you're going to say stuff that is slightly different to what you might say uh, if you had time to consider it and the written word, get it checked by people, and then eventually you submit what you feel happy uh, saying on the record. Uh, and I would suggest um, uh, that you have then a context in which this is a bunch of people coming to celebrate the research of this university and they want you to talk about that. Um, and in the way that that gets framed, I think you may get people preferentially talking about the positives uh, in ways that may be more positive than they would if in the written word. Um, 
I think whether or not you want to claim this stuff and write it down, um, I think what is good about this uh, is that you can then use those videos um, to build rich online materials that complement what you're doing. And I think where there is much less um, questionable ground is to say, well, look, we're not going to use these as direct quotes um, uh, and we will get written testimonials on letter paper where people uh, are now on the record, which we will quote, um, but at the same time then, in terms of our online PR around this work, we've got then uh, these people and it's coming from their mouths in their own words uh, on, on video talking about it. So it can have real impact uh, in, in communication terms as well then. One final thing that I'll uh, look at then is just um, broadening what you look for. So this is not really a, a kind of a technique or tool or a method, uh, but a way of thinking because I think very often when you are evidencing impact, uh, you get stuck into a bit of a rut. So you've got uh, an impact which is specifically uh, about um, uh, the economics. Uh, and as a result, you're counting the profit or the turnover of the spin-out company, um, or you're looking at the economics to the local economy in some way. And actually, you forget to look for the other benefits. So what are the social and cultural benefits to the people who have bought this product or who have been saved all of this money? Uh, are there even some environmental benefits that you have a new process which saves money, but it also saves carbon, for example? Uh, and very often when you start to look for these other impacts, you find other impacts which are just as exciting and that are just as worthy of reporting um, as, as the things that you were originally looking for. That's how to evidence it. The key last question that I want to address then is how to do this in a way which is as painless as possible. Um, the problem that I have is that I'm working on so many different projects and because of the nature of my research, they're all chasing different types of impact. Uh, and I get really quite uh, confused and uh, forgetful about what is happening on different projects. Uh, and so I need a way of capturing things on the go uh, as it happens. Most universities have some kind of system now where you can log or register or track impacts online. Um, and the problem is that they're not getting a huge amount of engagement from academics. Uh, and that's because they're quite hard to use sometimes. Um, you need to have a, a username and password. You need to be online. They don't work on mobile, etc. Uh, and so uh, I think that's fine. I, I want you to use your institutional repository. Uh, I use my own one, uh, and I'm encouraging my own staff in my, in my own school to do this. Uh, I'm director of impact for, for my school. Um, so this is absolutely essential. We need to do that. But I'm only going to ask my staff to record it in that institutional repository once a year, just like your funders will ask you to do this once a year. And actually, the stuff that happened at the beginning of the year, 11 months ago, now I can't really remember. And the reality, human nature, most of us leave these things till the last minute and the day before, we're scrabbling to try and find something to put in here to tick boxes to keep me happy if you're uh, in my school. Um, and, and actually, the stuff that gets put into these repositories therefore lacks the specificity and the detail to actually be very useful. So my message to you is to find something, anything that works for you as a kind of a solution that you can use on the go on a day-to-day -day basis and to try and think about creating some kind of way to, to make a culture uh, an everyday practice or habit of tracking your impact. Some people like to do just 
folders, um, like the ring binder folders. Some people, it's a folder in their email. Um, some people like to use OneDrive. I personally use Evernote to do this. Uh, if you want to find out more about how I use this, just go to fasttrackimpact.com forward slash Evernote. Um, uh, and for me, one of the useful things about Evernote is that um, uh, if you have one super user, like me for my school, um, or uh, you for uh, a group of other projects, uh, everyone else can have this for free. Um, and for my £30 a year, uh, people can just email their impacts in. So I've got uh, for uh, my project websites, um, just a link, you click on the link, brings up an email to my Evernote. It goes directly into the notebook for that project and people just know, I just have to remember to go to the website, go to the contact page and click on the link. That's all I need to remember. I don't need to log onto a new website. I don't need to even have the app. I don't need to be online. I just need to be able to use email. Um, and the great thing for me is there's no excuse. If you can use email, then you can track your impacts and you can let me know what's going on in this project uh, or in the school. Uh, so it's a really powerful way of doing this um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And for those people who do like productivity apps and things like that, um, then you can share it. And all of the people in your team can have a shared notebook on their own mobile phone, tablet, computer that they are putting stuff into directly. Um, and they can clip uh, web pages so they're stored as images or PDFs for posterity. Uh, so you've recorded that impact uh, or evidence of impact, um, even if it goes offline later on. They can record audio directly into it. You can uh, fire in things with attachments. Um, it's, it's a very user-friendly way of just making it easy. Uh, so this is about taking the pain out of tracking this on a regular basis, making it something that you can do on a day-to-day -day basis really easily. Um, and then you have lots of evidence to choose from when your funders come knocking, asking for the evidence. So my action today uh, is uh, the day-to-day the -day task of tracking your impact. Uh, have a think over the long term about some of these uh, more creative, uh, perhaps too creative, ideas for evidencing your impact. Um, but for the short term, for this week, uh, I think what is most useful is to really have a think about how you are going to track your impacts this week, next week, over the coming days. Um, and what are the things that you need a system to do for you? Does it need to be mobile? Um, does it need to be able to work offline? Um, does it need to be paper-based? What is it that you need to do? Uh, and it doesn't matter what the answer is, come up with some kind of system that can make it easy for you to just collate stuff. It doesn't matter if in a year's time you decide actually it wasn't relevant, but some place where you can dump all of this stuff as you go so that you've got a really rich repository of stuff to choose from the next time someone asks you, what is your impact? What I'm gonna do now is just to explain what comes next, actually, because um, uh, I've looked um, at a, a few different ways in which you can fast track and enhance your impact um, so far in the, in the series. Uh, and I said at the beginning of the series that I really wanted to get a better balance um, between uh, impact-based material and productivity-based material. And so over the next at least three, uh, I'm not sure, we'll see how this goes um, uh, in terms of me writing my book. <laughs> it may be uh, more than three episodes, but certainly for the next uh, three episodes, I'd like to, to dive into productivity um, and go right in at the deep end, actually. So uh, this is chapter two of my next book, The Productive Researcher. Um, 
uh, and uh, I've divided this into three segments that I think uh, will be really useful, really powerful for you, thinking about motivation and how you can make your motivation stronger, sharper, uh, more motivational, so that you become more productive and therefore you can become more uh, efficient. Uh, and instantly I hear people saying, oh my goodness, not more productivity type stuff. Um, actually, you know what, uh, I, I'm, I'm productive enough, thanks. I'm already overworked enough. People are trying to squeeze more productivity out of me uh, all the time. And I think that a lot of us feel performance managed and measured to within an inch of our lives uh, by ever more demanding employers nowadays. Uh, where did the time go to just think, I hear many people ask. Um, and I don't want to work any harder than I already do. Actually, I just want to work easier and more efficiently. I want to be more productive so that I can get my thinking time back and have more free time, better work-life balance. Um, in this book, I have interviewed uh, some of the most productive researchers in the world internationally. Um, it's been a fascinating time, really inspirational for me, uh, interviewing these people all over the world who are crazily productive. I mean, like, frighteningly productive. Um, and the, the, one of the most important things that I've learned, I think, from these guys is that if you are serious about becoming more productive, you actually need to become serious about taking time off properly. Being pro more productive um, to spend less time working. Spend less time working to become more productive. Seems like a contradiction in terms, but all of these guys would argue it is all about balance. So hopefully that has given you uh, a bit of a idea of what's coming up next. Um, and then I'm gonna dive into now three episodes uh, focusing really quite deeply on your motivation and on your productivity. Enjoy.